Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we're joined by Gregor McQueen, founder and CEO of McQueen Associates, LLC, which is an independent political risk advisory and planning firm. Gregor has been delivering geopolitical risk mitigation strategies for over 25 years. His current work is focused on developing new critical thought and holistic and more systematic solutions to improve resilience and sustainability outcomes for entities navigating geopolitics. Gregor, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what you do in your geopolitical risk management, but I'm always curious about uh, background, and we'd love to hear it from our guests better than, than us reading your bio. So please tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you're from, what got you interested in geopolitics and, and risk management, and, uh, and probably also, I'm also very interested in what other kinds of people do you run into in this industry, and do they have similar backgrounds to you or not? Uh, well, you can probably tell from my accent that I uh, grew up in England. Um, I actually graduated in uh, metallurgy material science from Imperial College in London. And uh, at the time, I felt that the job options that were available to me were primarily uh, highly technical and lab-based. I wasn't really too keen on that and had a real interest in global trade and investment projects, including what made them function or not function. I was fortunate enough to be introduced by a Royal Navy friend of my father's to the Lloyd's insurance market in London, and I was offered a position on a graduate training program that included political risk insurances. So I jumped on that. I specialized in those insurances for about 17 years and then decided to pursue ways to help organizations where those insurances were less able to address the client needs. And that's how I got into consulting and the counter political risk planning work that I do now. But that engineering training of looking at a problem in a methodical and systematic way certainly continues to be hugely beneficial. So, Gregor, turning to your work these days, when we talk about geopolitical risk, let's let's just um, break it down for for our audience. What exactly are we are we talking about? I, I think that for many people there's an intuitive sense of, of what falls in that bucket, but probably there are other things that might not be as evident. But what are we talking about when we talk about a geopolitical risk? Well, there are multiple forms and variations of political risks. 
geopolitical risks itself is really just the transnational nature of the risks. But of course, there are national political risks as well. They're basically any governmental action or inaction that impacts an organization's operations. I like to look at it in terms of risk types. We all know about black swans and gray rhinos. And you remember that black swans are rare, are hidden, and they're highly improbable. And there's no choice in how you respond to them. With gray rhinos, they're foreseeable, obvious, and highly probable. And most choices to respond are likely to be inadequate. But they're often, as risks, they tend to be dismissed or ignored. So staying with that animal theme, I like to describe political risks as a combined jungle and rainforest of differing animals. There are the knowns and the unknowns. They're all external disruptors, which are driven by human influences. Some examples can be government theft, such as confiscation, typically of assets. Contract breaches is another. For example, a Venezuelan government under a contract may not pay for equipment that has been supplied. Other acts include trade disputes, such as the current US-China disputes, or embargoes and tariffs, or the inability to convert, trans convert and transfer currency, or a currency devaluation. Coups or insurrections, as well as wars, are other political risks as well. They, they tend to be the physical type, but they can also interrupt con contracts. And then lastly, there's also risk to employees, such as kidnap and ransom, or threats or actual detention by authorities. Political risks are generally challenging because they change constantly as governments change. And in the last 20, 10 to 20 years, they've become much more complex and prevalent and impactful than those that I've just mentioned. They still exist today, but some examples that are more recent include authoritarian regimes that provoke cycles of conflicts with coercion, sanctions, or other retaliatory actions, or data and technology use as political tools by governments for digital autocracy and protectionism. Disruption of supply chains is another, which can be, as we've you know, all seen recently, uh, they can come from health uh, regulations or travel restrictions. Then there are things like state-sponsored cyber attacks or election interference through coercion or use of mis- and disinformation. Those are a couple of the recent, more recent types of political risks. One example was regarding the elections in Russia recently. It demonstrated how authoritarian states use censorship all to enhance government control of the internet. The background was that in July, Putin signed a law applied selectively to tech companies like Google with a daily audience of at least half a million people in Russia, requiring them to open offices in the country. Seems innocuous, right? However, in essence, after citing Moscow court rulings that declared the opposition leader's network as extremist, the courts began, began leveling multi-million ruble fines against those tech giants for failure to ban what they called illegal content. The apps that they had identified challenges to incumbents of the pro-Putin party for supporters of the jailed 
opposition leader Alex Navalny. So then the authorities threatened jail time for the tech employees. Apple and Google resisted at first, but then deleted smart voting apps from their online stores just before the election day. So while not a new new tactic, censorship and coercion feature strongly for authoritarian states that typically restrict freedom of speech, religion, the press and the internet, or public activism. It's all about control and retaining power. The problem is that the number of autocratic countries is actually rising. According to a democracy report in March of this year, there are 32 countries that are threatening freedom of expression, which is up from 19 in 2010, and 68% of the world's population now living in autocracies, which is up from 48% in 2010. Gregor, what's an example of a, of a gray rhino? Sure. Well, that's a, actually a good, in, uh, interesting uh, one. We tend to think of risks in, in categories, and, and gray rhinos is one of them, because most or a lot of um, political risks center around opaque governments, judicial unpredictability, as well as regulation changes, corruption, and other forms of political violence. But in terms of gray rhinos, the uh, pandemic is actually a really good example. You could have that or climate risk as another example, both in, in terms of events that are foreseeable and coming at us, but we don't really know how governments are going to react. Take climate risk, for example, um, you know, with everyone meeting in Glasgow this coming week. It's not clear how much regu- uh, new government support there's going to be in order to achieve the Paris Agreement goals. That's that's one example. So I'm very curious how the insurance market interacts with these uh, with these events. So you had mentioned force majeure clauses. Of course, Fred and I write a lot of contracts in the international context. And so I'm very curious from your insurance background perspective, what are the kinds of things that can be addressed by insurance? And what are the things that insurance, uh, except for maybe a, a hefty Lloyd's policy, would not cover? Um, well, it's it's typical. The, the insurance policies typically respond to a couple of the risks I mentioned at the beginning. Um, there are the expropriatory risks um, relative to assets. Uh, they can also um, respond to contracts with government's uh, involvement in some, either in terms of performance or payment from a government. Uh, and then also, in terms of general categories, I mean, there, there are also the political violence perils that uh, insurance can respond to. Um, there are things that they won't really take care of. So, for example, a chemical nuclear war is not something that a Lloyd's policy, even a Lloyd's policy would cover. Um, you know, something between the five major powers, for example, as a, as a war is not really... Um, an insurable, it's not a, it's not a risk that, that most insurers w- would want to take on. So I'm curious, uh, you've talked a little bit about how you view the world. And I think that if, if uh, let's say a client comes to you and says, we're going to develop operations in, uh, let's say North Africa, let's say Sudan. Sudan's a hot topic lately, right? So let's say that uh, a prospective client comes to you and says, we're planning on doing some kind of development project in 
northeastern Africa, probably in the Sudan region. Um, how would you talk around the risks and, and how do you, what's kind of your initial pitch that you would give to them and say, okay, here are the services I offer, or my company offers these uh, these services and uh, here are some of the things that are top of mind for me if you're thinking about entering this region. If you don't want to use that example, that's fine. You could pick another part of the world, but it's just top of mind with me uh, because it's always it's always churning in, in that part of Africa. Right. Um, we provide what I call counter political risk planning and advisory services. And you need to approach this with different tactics for different risks and different circumstances, obviously. So whether you're considering an investment that is relative to a partnership or or perhaps involvement with an autocratic government or a democratic one, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in. or specifically the nature of your industry. If you're a mining company in Africa, then there are certainly specific aspects that you want to look at relative to that. Or, or a data services company, um, or, a, or, or just manufacturing of, of consumer goods. We think it's essential to approach these risks in a holistic and strategic way to improve the outcomes. We actually have a six-part framework that includes identifying potential opportunities and risk categories, because I think it's important to, rather than try and list list every single risk in in how you approach something, it's more important to think of categories of risk because you can plan ahead for the categories, whereas you might miss a particular risk, and uh, obviously that's, that's what you want to avoid. So one of the aspects of managing the risks is obviously rigorous and continuous collection of that information about whatever country you're operating in or going to operate in uh, and potential uh, indicators of, of the category problems that you might have identified. So that involves looking at signals uh, and, and blocking out the noise that may be surrounding those signals and the trends and assumptions that you're making, the drivers towards what sort of risk might be happening or not happening, as well as those sort of buffers that could restrict what would be happening. The data needs to include social, economic, and political information and be obtained both internally from locals in the country uh, and also obviously your own headquarters, but uh, include external sources like academic experts and, and others. It should also include a deep stakeholder analysis of all parties, including all of the partners, the counterparties involved in the project, the buyers, the suppliers, obviously the customers and the local interests as well. All that data helps provide early warnings uh, of problems. The second factor I'll mention is integrating all of that planning into your enterprise-wide processes. You have to be proactive with political risks because allocating responsibility to a specific group within the company tends to silo the process and that's less effective. So forming a cross-functional geostrategy group, if you want to call it that, and engaging the board and C-suite to incorporate geopolitical risks into their strategic planning is really important. While incorporating and learning from history and data about the company the country involved, it's also really important to examine plausible political futures to determine the best approach 
to that organization's strategic objectives. So that means combining geopolitical scenario planning with forecasting and incorporating it into your business planning. The scenario analysis helps clients generate plausible futures and identify critical signposts that signal when those futures are more probable to emerge. Forecasting, the likelihood of passing each signpost, then assesses the relative likelihood of one future materializing over another and provides a quantitative measure, a percentage of probability, if you like, that can be tested for accuracy. Gregor, it's easy to conceive of a scenario where a company is not proactive about addressing risks. I mean, we can we can I, we we have lots of examples of that, and it's and it's conceptually easy to uh, to understand. But I'm interested in some of the success stories, and obviously, I understand that that you're not going to be able to to address these with with specificity. But to, to to the extent that you can, would you be able to to point to examples of um, situations? And it, it 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 doesn't have to be a client of yours, right? It could be something more more general, but some of the situations where through proper risk assessment and management, companies have been able to avoid the worst case scenarios in, in some of these challenging markets. Sure. Um, one way to increase a host country's dependence on your local operation, for example, is to use non-replicable technology, which is built into the production process itself, or an intermediate product that is owned by your parent company or your home country operation. As an example, one oil drilling company used advanced technology that only its specially trained engineers could use, so that incentives for government officials to coerce the company were lower if than if the company had been using a generic technology that the locals could have operated themselves in the absence of the, those engineers. And if technology can't be used, sometimes external leverage can, and it can be deployed effectively through lobbying your own government, especially when you're operating in a country that's allied to your own government's foreign policy. Alternatively, Finding a source of reliance of the host country government, such as a dependence on a particular material or a particular fuel or a finance source. And then using that influence over that dependency can be, de- can be effective. So, Gregor, I'd love to learn about some of the thought leaders in your industry. I feel like uh, I, I, I guess I consider myself a, a budding geopoliticist, right? I love the interplay of, of the geography, uh, politics, uh, international events that impact each other all over the world. And even the, to some extent, all of the, all of the churning that happens all over the world, right? It's, it's, it's hard to watch in certain areas, but it's also fascinating to watch as well. But who are some of the uh, who are some of the thought leaders in, in your industry that that you look to some sources? And of course, we'll talk about other recommendations later. But I'm just curious, you know, when, on your on your LinkedIn feed, on your Twitter feed, uh, on your newsletters you get in your email inbox, what are some of the groups and uh, and individuals that you follow and and respect? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Uh, 
let me just have a think about that. I mean, there are there are certainly all of the groups that you know there are the academic institutions that are subject matter experts in particular areas, and um, I would tend to go to them to help frame the right questions that one needs to ask about a particular uh, operation or a country. But then there are also um, the think tanks that also can uh, provide, or, or they do provide, uh, frequent reports and uh, analysis of government policies. And uh, uh, so I would I would uh, include those. A couple of examples there are the Atlantic Council or uh, CSIS. Um, obviously, there are there are many think tanks, but those are a couple of the ones that I follow. And which academic institutions, uh, you know, say we've got students that are listening to the podcast that are interested in this because they love international affairs and they think that this might be a great niche for them to focus on? What are some of the, are we talking Oxford, Cambridge, uh, you know, Berkeley, NYU? What are, what are some of the institutions that they should be looking at? Uh, well, there's the Hoover Institution at Stanford and uh, certainly Oxford uh, has a, a great political science program. Uh, Wharton also has uh, a great uh, sector for political risk. Um, so th- the main institutions that you would expect to certainly have uh, international affairs programs, but but also some of them have uh, specific political risk uh, analysis and, and, and courses that look at certainly risk management in general, but also some of them look specifically at political risk. So Gregor, uh, as, you, as you might know, both uh, <laughs> both of us are are China watchers, and and it's 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 hard for us to to get through any interview without without bringing up China. And as as uh, as I listen to you, it it uh, it dawns on me that for for someone like me, for example, who uh, is always following what's happening in China from from a particular perspective, from having lived there, from having an interest in the country, from 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 working with with clients who are doing business there. It's it's actually easy sometimes to to forget or, or to to neglect the the risk element. Perhaps I'm I'm too too invested in in some of the discussions to to look at things through a through a proper uh, risk assessment lens. For example, when you look at, at Chinese politics, it's it's easy um, to to get caught up in the, the the personalities and and the sort of historical significance of, of certain events. Um, but of course, there's there's um, there's the risk calculations sort of operate on a on a different plane. They're related to all of this, but but obviously have a have a life of their own. So how would how would you approach China uh, as a, as a business proposition from this risk analysis perspective? Well, China is a very uh, interesting country to operate in, as a, as you both know, um, and it's become particularly challenging. Um, the reason I say that is because you know there have been several examples. Uh, um, the H and M clothing line uh, is one, but Nike as well, where companies are trying to balance operating in China within the regulations that are there, that are being 
the new regulations as well as, as uh, you know, some that, that may be coming. And they find that it's a challenge to walk the line of what, what regulations are in China and, and being asked by the Chinese sometimes to say support the one China policy or to, to come out and be vocal against the events in Hong Kong um, last uh, in 2019 to support the the Chinese government and and their the the regulators there, but at the same time they have to also satisfy their investors and and customers and and interests back at home. So walking that fine line is a particularly challenging thing in China. Um, I would say the risks involved, you have to, as I said, come, you know, take a step back and, and be very systematic about how you approach it because the, the risk may come out of left field. And um, you know, from my perspective, the categories tend to be I think there's a sort of under underused relation between ESG risks and political risks, or ESG issues, excuse me, and political risks. And by that, for example, I mean you know everyone's everyone's well aware of the environmental problems uh, in China and the pollution problems. But you know, for example, there was a a various Maplecroft. Uh, environmental outlook reports last year, or this both this year and last year. This year, uh, they ranked cities at risk and their exposure to a range of environmental and climate-related issues, which showed that primarily due to pollution, 99 of the world's 100 riskiest cities are in Asia, including 43 in India and 37 in China. In its 2020 outlook, it specifically uh, identified the manufacturing heartland from risk of rising seas, and specifically Guangzhou and Dongguan as the two major cities in the Pearl River Delta economic zone that are most vulnerable to sea level rise. Now, there's approximately $348 billion or 20% of China's GDP in that area. And about 7.8 million people are in those high-risk locations from sea level rise. So that being such a globally important manufacturing hub, it's important to consider that, yes, it's perhaps a medium-term risk, but you know, I think uh, you know, the IPCC, for example, has re-emphasized that this is a very or should be a very front of mind risk for people to, to consider. And whether or not governments actually go ahead and provide legislation that is going to meet the Paris Agreement is really still open for question. But for a company, you, ha- you from my perspective, you have to consider the sea level rise in, in that, that region as to one of the major risks for the next 10, 40 years. Gregory, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, I remember uh, as far back as 
2005 2006 at that time I was I was working as a US diplomat in Guangzhou and my office overlooked the Pearl River and I remember that we were having conversations about some of the studies and projections that were coming out and 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 one of the things that others were 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 pointing to was exactly this issue I mean the the the, the port infrastructure uh on which uh China and specifically it's 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 uh, it's industry in 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 South China relied on that would that would be at risk uh, a lot of the a lot of the infrastructure and obviously e- even at a uh, government facilities etc right I mean this was something that I mean we had to deal with flooding on a regular basis uh, back then um, just as a, as a in the normal course of of of, of events so so it's interesting that that this. Um, that you bring this up, but at the same time, uh, at this, I, I also think, wow, it's been uh, 15 years, <laughs> and um, uh, I wonder if if there's, uh, you know, so you cannot say this is a a, a, a new a, a, a newly discovered risk in in any way yet. Um, and let, let's 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 put the question this way: um, Are companies doing anything about this and you you bring up another great point uh which maybe you can you can sort of address uh, in your answer as well which is that th- there's there's the government aspect of all this and 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 what measures are going to be adopted by national governments and what kind of agreements are going to be to be reached and and there might be frustration on the part of some as to how that is that is going but that is is certainly not an excuse for for companies to to, to ignore these these risks so um w- w- i mean it is there we certainly hear a lot about these risks i mean it's 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 something that is increasingly being talked about in in the news well it's a classic gray rhino risk right because you 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 know it's out there and there are there have been 15 years of delays about doing anything about it uh, china's coal use is, is another example um you know they are they're currently expanding their coal power plants um, because of the power outages and, and the need to supply power to all the manufacturing operations. But that's that's an interesting, or going to I think, going to be a real challenge for China in the next ten or so years is actually balancing the demands for power uh, from manufacturing operations with the requirements that are going to really be coming home about having to make changes to the environmental regulations in order to avoid things like rising sea levels. So let's turn to a China alternative. We've been hearing a lot about, at least in the U.S., about nearshoring, onshoring, uh, and Mexico has become much more prominent in conversations the last couple of years, uh, in part due to the trade war, in part due to uh, COVID and the way it has impacted, uh, especially global shipping issues. Uh, what are your thoughts on Mexico uh, as an alternative to China in terms of geopolitical risk, uh, availability of resources, uh, including the resources required to build up uh, Mexico's manufacturing infrastructure more? Well, of course, there's that time-tested device that it's never good to have all of your eggs in one basket. And that's particularly true of um, political risks. So so over the last 20 years or so, China has become the world's primary manufacturer. And this is now viewed by many as a key political risk. 
President Biden recently described it well, I think. He said, we should never have to rely on one country for goods, especially when that country does not share our values. So companies have started rethinking their manufacturing locations and reshoring, as you say, and nearshoring. I think there's more of a move towards what I call regionalization uh, and that you locate the manufacturing facilities relative to the major markets that you have. And, and obviously that may be, that may involve your strategy for having operations for China in China. And, or it may be that you have a Southeast Asian alternate com- country as your main regional uh, operation, perhaps in Thailand or, or Vietnam. And uh, then you also have regional operations in South America or Mexico supplying North America and uh, obviously in Europe too. So uh, my perspective is that that analysis had really started before the pan- pandemic hit. You know, the former administration, having ratcheted up the trade disagreement, uh, started the process. But then COVID, when COVID hit, companies started really looking at, at their regional strategies. And it's partly a realization about the fact that you can't have all of your eggs in a single China manufacturing basket. It's just not a good risk strategy. Diversifying from China to alternate locations mean you're less, means you're less prone to intellectual property risks or forced technology transfer. You're less prone to business interruption from power cuts that seem to be getting worse. You're less prone to the shift in Chinese consumer demands, for example, their preference for domestic rather than foreign brands. And less prone to have state competitors who are competing against you. Some industries such as steel, shipbuilding, electric vehicles, and semiconductors have seen significant government subsidies to Chinese companies. So you really have to prepare to have subsidized competitors back back competing with you in your own markets. I think think Mexico is is certainly a very, it's certainly a high candidate uh, country for having uh, operations to supply North America. There There are some risks that you have to be concerned about. Uh, obviously, it depends on the location, but security risks for both your operational plant and people is one that you would probably want to have a look at. The other thing that I've, I've, you know, I've mentioned, I think before, but it, you know, you have to be able to monitor developments in so many countries when you're looking at this, and and, and information overload is actually part of the problems of of analyzing political risk. But but coming back to it, you have to monitors the developments on an ongoing basis because obviously things change. And so, for example, in Turkey, just last Thursday, the global money laundering watchdog, the financial action task force of the G7, placed Turkey under surveillance for shortcomings in combating money laundering and terrorism financing. So, you know, Turkey is one country, but it's that may be a candidate for supplying operations in Europe. But it's also become a country that's become more autocratic in the last five or 10 years. I just perhaps want to add that uh, it's important, obviously, to tailor the regionalization strategy of your operations to your 
organizational strategic goals. And that profile may be for your sales in China or having your operations in specific countries, but matching the regions that you need to uh, around around the world. So, Gregor, I imagine that COVID-19 has been an ever-present topic in your in your work. But not only that, I imagine that it's going to reshape the way that that we look at at, at risk. I, I I think that, for example, uh, alluding to some of what Jonathan said earlier, I think that any any lawyer worth his or her salt structuring transactions is is going to uh, keep this experience in in mind for a very long time, right? Probably until a time when some of our younger colleagues look at us uh, oddly um, for for continuing to bring up this this weird pandemic that uh, apparently we experienced at some point. But uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more uh, about this. I mean, how in what concrete ways is is COVID perhaps influencing your work, and and how is it going to to change the nature of of what you do? Uh, going forward, and perhaps um, more, more, more practically, I mean, what um, what real risks might we might we be facing uh, down the line? I, th- I think that one of the obviously there, there there are a lot of questions still outstanding regarding COVID and its origins, but certainly the even the the suggestion that we might have experienced this um, catastrophe as a result of um, some level of human manipulation. And of course, you know, we, we, we don't know, we don't have definitive answers on that yet, but even the suggestion of that, I would think has to have a, a quite an impact on, on the visualization of future risks. It certainly has had a huge impact, but I, I just to to comment about one the, that last aspect of, of what you said there, Fred. I think I, th- I don't think that we can say that it, it, that COVID has resulted from from manipulation. This was something that really was foreseen or foreseeable for a very long time. Um, you know, I've had a global pandemic on my watch list since around 2003, when SARS first uh, outbroke in um, in Southeast Asia and was largely contained there. But there are renowned epidemiologists like Dr. Larry Brilliant, and yes, that really is his name. He helped eradicate smallpox and warned about the global pandemic very early on. In fact, he did a great TED talk about it called my wish helped me stop pandemics uh, back in 2006. His mantra was early detection, early response. And that's become mine relative to political risk. But if you have time, I certainly recommend you uh, having a, a, a watch of his TED talk. It's, it's really inspira- inspirational. But it, it shows to me that you know there are risks that are forecastable and you what you what is what is key is that you have to write ask the right questions obviously and and who is capable of asking the right questions 
is one of one of the key things. But you know, you have to really be able to have lateral and critical thought about a wide range of issues to see where the next thing might be coming from. And that's that's part of the challenge of political risk. Um, but part of the fun, if you want to put it that way. But uh, it's certainly it's certainly important to see or try and foresee where things are going to come from. COVID certainly has impacted how everybody works. Uh, you know, everyone moving to remote communication. But for example, before COVID, the previous administration here highlighted how one's own government can significantly impact geopolitical risks in many different ways. You know, it withdrew from the TPP trade agreement and the Paris Agreement, as well as threatening to cut funds to the WHO, the WTO, and NATO. Businesses really seek to have stable operating conditions and stable judicial systems in order that they can have a certainty of what's going to be coming. And, and that's, that's the prevailing wisdom, really, is that you, you can do that from within multinational institutions in a better way than pursuing isolationist policies that really don't achieve what you're trying to do. Uh, I, think, I think you were asking me as well uh, what sort of risks I might be looking at now, if, if, if that's, I think that I heard that in your question. But uh, some of the ones that I'd be looking at now would be reduced biodiversity and, and therefore more frequent emerging infectious diseases. But on the other hand to that, we've got, you know, vaccine development has come so far in terms of mRNA vaccines. Um, so that's while, while there's the risk of more infectious diseases, there's the counterbalance or the buffer, if you like, of faster development of vaccines. But both of those, uh, but but the infectious diseases are likely to cause new disruptions to supply chains. Certainly, U.S., China, and EU tensions and disputes are a risk that I am constantly watching, particularly over China's state-sponsored commercial activities and subsidies, as well as its impact on climate change that I mentioned from pollution and its responsibility to act to pay for slower movement to Paris Agreement goals, if in fact it does slow those promises that it's made to reduce its uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I also expect to see some more problems over Taiwan, particularly because President Xi has said so many times that it must be and will be unified with the uh, People's Republic of China. Last Thursday, President Biden reaffirmed his commitment to defend Taiwan if China attacks. So while war may seem unlikely, corporations, I believe, should consider the scenarios for themselves and develop business continuity and contingency plans. A couple of other risks that I'm on, they're on my radar, and, and, and then I'll stop there. Solar and space weather is an interesting one. Coronal mass ejections, uh, mass ejections, excuse me, that impact the global satellite communications networks. Another is the reduction of sea ice, which is amplifying strategic competition in the Arctic and access to its natural resources. And then in, in, in along that vein, I'm also watching tipping points that accelerate rises in sea levels. 
Gregor, I'm glad that you ended with what your what's on top of mind for you. That's very helpful and certainly interesting uh, to hear from someone in your point of view. We always like to close our podcast with recommendations from you, from Fred, from me, something that you've read recently or watched or listened to that has been impactful, maybe some of your old favorites that you go back to. Um, This can be on point with our topic today or completely off point. What do you have for us? Well, aside from Dr. Larry Brilliant's TED Talk, uh, I have two recommendations. The first is called, it's a book called The Long Game. It's by Rush Doshi. And it is all uh, about China's grand strategy to displace American order. Anyone who has interest in China, I think, certainly uh, should, should understand what the Communist Party's playbook is and their strategy. This book has been painstakingly researched, and it includes a large trove of rarely cited or previously inaccessible Chinese texts, and a systematic study of key puzzles in Chinese military, political, and economic behavior, and a close look at the variables shaping strategic adjustment. Just a couple of sentences from the introduction. What are China's ambitions? And does it have a grand strategy to achieve them? If it does, what is that strategy? What shapes it? And what should the United States do about it? These are basic questions for American policymakers, and I'd add also businesses, that are grappling with this century's greatest geopolitical challenge, not least because knowing an opponent's strategy is the first step to countering it. And yet, as great power tensions are flaring, there is no consensus on the answers right now. This book attempts to provide those answers. My second recommendation is actually that I have to plug specific articles from Harris Brookens' own China law blog. First is Dan Harris's Who Owns Your Overseas Factory and Why It Really Matters. It includes a great list of articles of what to look out for when you're moving your manufacturing from China. The second is Sheltering Manufacturing in Mexico by Adrian Cisneros Aguila. And then finally, Mexico is the new China and manufacturers are moving there, also by Dan Harris. Those three articles were were, were wonderful. I really uh, found them very helpful. Excellent, thank you for those recommendations. Fred, what do you have for us today? Uh, my recommendation is, I, I have um, two related recommendations. One of them is a publication and it's called the the Taiwan Gazette. And from what I can gather, most, if not all, of their material is is translated material. And and one thing that I like about it is that it it, it does have a pretty broad focus. It's it's not just Taiwan focused. There, there's material from from other countries as well. Uh, however, my specific recommendation is Taiwan related, and this is an article that they published titled. Thinking Outside the Pot, the Bond Between Taiwan and the Steam Rice Cooker. And this uh, really jumped out at me um, because anyone who has uh, Taiwanese friends or uh, family members, spouses, will, will understand the, uh, the outsized importance that um, 
the rice cookers, the importance that, that this has in, in, in Taiwanese culture. So I was, this, this caught my eye and it, it turned out to be a, a pretty, pretty uh, fun read. Um, and as with so many other things beneath the apparent simplicity of, of these, of, of this appliance, um, there's, there's the whole, um, whole set of complex issues, right? I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of, uh, engineering that, that went into, into the uh, the development of, of these uh, rice cookers, um, so highly recommend this, Jonathan. What 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 do you have for us? I'm recommending an app today. It's called Nuri N O U R I, and it is a customer relationship management app for people like us. So those of us who are networkers, we uh, you know we live and die by our network. Uh, you know, we have a hard time keeping track of people on on Twitter, on LinkedIn. We meet them at conferences and trying to organize them, you know, on our phone or on our laptops on a spreadsheet. And so I was at a venture capital conference in Salt Lake City about a month ago, and I met the CEO, uh, who's a business school professor at BYU. His name's Sean Baer. Uh, they were promoting the app. They had a launch party just a couple of weeks ago that I attended. And uh, it's very interesting, right? It's for If you're the kind of person who likes people uh, but has a hard time keeping track of everyone because you have so many people in your network. Um, this is the kind of app that you can use. It, you you have to put your, takes your contacts from your phone and then you can put them into circles, right? Work circles, church circles, friends circles, family circles, uh, and you can manage your uh, manage your interactions with them. Uh, you know, it, it pulls in their social media feed so you can see what they've been talking about recently. You can set reminders for times to check in with them. Uh, you can message them right from the app. Uh, call them right from the app. So it's it's an interesting thing, and, and it's the kind of thing that I'd been thinking about and needing and hadn't gone looking for it. And so fortunately, I, I came across it at this conference, and it's exactly what, what I need. I'm still in the early stages of integrating with it, um, but it's it, it seems to be very worthwhile and certainly is an easier way than trying to manage my spreadsheet between my, my phone and my laptop. So it's called Nuri, N-O-U-R-I, Nuri app, and we'll provide the link um, it's in the app stores, uh, but also provide a link uh, on our blog copy for this episode. So with that, Gregor, we want to thank you for being with us today. We we love uh, talking to other people who think about risk the same way we do. We see risk everywhere. And then, of course, having a level head and talking about it and uh, categorizing it and, and trying to mitigate it. So thanks for your time. Uh, we hope we can check in with you again and hope that uh, hope that you enjoyed your time with us as well. I certainly did. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.